Um, I'm going to think of every story or the storyline of every football movie ever made. Okay? Every football movie ever made. Now I want you to think of this one instead. All right? So once upon a time, there was a football team and they were awesome. Every one of them were just awesome. Not only that, they loved each other perfectly. It was just the most amazing team. They just all loved each other, worked together well. They came from a long line of winning teams. It's just all amazing for them. They won every game of the season by blowout. It's exciting. And they, they then went, of course, to the playoffs. And the, the playoffs start. The team still loved each other, still worked together perfectly. They progressed. They went to um, the championship game. The community loved their team. The other team even loved the team. It was just, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. Um, finally, though, it, it came to the time when they were in the championship match, okay? And as you would expect, here's the grand moment of the, of the, the movie. Uh, they're winning by 72. <laughs> and there's this moment at the end, right, where the music is emotional and slow, and they, they hike the ball, and the clock goes to zero. There's one more play, and it goes to slow motion. You follow me? Quarterback drops back. And keep in mind, he's clean because he hasn't been on the ground at all. He drops back, and he looks. He sees his receiver and throws down the sideline. Catch back of the end zone. Zero seconds. It's amazing. They carry him off. I mean, the emotions are, are high. As you watch that, it's just not that exciting, isn't it? That long bomb, I mean, yeah, it's good. They made a touchdown and everything. But, but where is the, the excitement? There was no conflict whatsoever in this wonderful story other than it bumping the score up six points from the touchdown. So with that in mind, it's not compelling. It's not, let me put it like this. If there is no conflict, the resolution is not compelling. And most of us have been told from the moment we were little the moment we were very little, that you are good. You're a good person. Uh, behind it all, we are all good people that sometimes just make bad decisions. That's what we're told. We're told that we are all good people. Sometimes we make bad decisions. As we get older, we know we're not perfect by any means, but we're not that bad, right? We're not that bad of people. I can think of worse people than myself, and I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that bad. Um, in fact, I've done this, I had to do this, I don't remember why, if it was church-related or whatnot, but when I was growing up, we, we did this thing where we went door-to-door, and we, we asked people, if you were to die, and you stood at the gates of heaven, and were asked, why should you be let in, what would your response be? By and large, the most popular response to that question is because I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I try to make good decisions. You know, I do what I can. I'm doing pretty good. That's, that's the typical response because this is what this shows you. Our culture does not believe that we're all that bad. It's not all that bad. Things really aren't that bad. And so what happens is, is when we come and we tell them the good news of the gospel, we tell them how incredible the work of Christ is, how amazing this is, their response, cool. Cool. I mean, that's, that's good. It's, it's, um, and we wonder, why is the gospel not as good as it should be? to them? Why don't they see it, you know? 
Here's what I want to get to. If the bad news really isn't that bad, then the good news won't really be that good. If the bad news really isn't that bad, then the good news really won't be that good. It's a lot like that horrible football movie that I just described to you. When I tell you about that long bomb, I mean, it's like, eh, okay, cool. But it's not compelling. It does nothing for us. It's not life-changing for us because conflict is what makes resolution sweet. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Ephesians 2. The first part of Ephesians 2, um, what we're going to talk about first is our, the conflict of our condition. I'm going to give you the bad news. Second part, we shift into talking about the resolution. So the first part, we're going to talk about the struggle, the opposition, our condition, the bad news. The second part, then we're going to shift in and talk about the victory. We're going to talk about the win. We're going to talk about the good news. Um, I promise as we go through this first section, I don't want to water it down. I don't want to water it down and make you think that it's better than it is because as we're going to see in this text, it is not, it's not good. Let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter two, it says, just the first three verses, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, whom, <clears throat> among whom we all once lived in our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So right off the bat, dead. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. And let's not pass over that because you were dead, meaning you were completely conquered by your sin completely conquered. Uh, Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Death. You are dead. How is that for conflict? You were dead. Dead things don't fight much. They don't argue well. They're dead. And that was our condition, that we were dead. So right off the bat, you see this hopeless scene painted. We continue on. Uh, Sin is winning. We're dead on the mat. And then Paul says, following after the course of this world. Think of it like this. There, there, um, there are specific things that our culture tells us that you need to live like this, you need to value this, you need to see this, you need, to, you need this, you need, life is about this. And Paul is saying it's like you're stuck in a mindless herd, just following along in our lines, not understanding that this does not end well. We're just following along in what we've always known. Even though we've seen it not end well for others, we follow along. It's like we're stuck following the natural course of life, which what is the natural course? Well, the first verse says death, death, that it leads to death, that we're dead in our sins. So the picture so far, uh, we are dead, sin is one, and we're stuck in a mindless herd following along in this madness that always and has ever led to death. Following with me? This is going to be so encouraging. Um, Follow with me. He continues and he says, following the prince of the power of the air, following the same spirit that is at work now in all the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out desires of the body and mind. So Paul here is talking about that pull in us 
that tells us, do what makes you feel good. Go where your heart, your passions lead you. Um, Do what makes you happy. Do what comes naturally, a little bit like hedonism. Do you know what hedonism is? Hedonism is, is a life that's guided and directed, completely guided and directed for the sole purpose of meeting your pleasure. So it's, it's organizing your life to try to meet your ongoing pleasure. That's what Paul speaks to. He says, you're, you're stuck being deceived by the enemy. You're stuck following after your passions. And this is where we were, okay? This is our condition. So let's get caught up. We're dead. Sin had won. We're stuck following after everything the world fed us. We're stuck following after what the enemy feeds us. We're stuck following after every passion and desire that our body and thoughts feed us. And we're following it to death. One more. Paul's not done. Paul says we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't pass that one over too quickly either. This one's heavy because just let it set in. Not only are we dead, we're subject to the wrath of God. It's like we've, we've looked at God and said, we can do this better. We've shaken our fist. We followed wholeheartedly after people that are shaking their fist at God. And we walk this path out. And God being perfect, holy, just, righteous, looks on us, looks at that sin. Hear me, in wrath in wrath. And if he didn't look at it that way, he would not be just. But he looks at that sin in wrath. In wrath. So, so let me recap. You were dead. You were following the world to judgment. You were living hedonistic lives that were leading to destruction. And you were under the wrath of God. There it is. So that is you. That is us. And if it ended here, if I were to just say, all right, would you pray with me and we would go home, you should leave very depressed. Should be very depressed. But follow me here. This is the point in the movie. That climax of the movie. When everything seems like just put on our shoulders. We don't know how it's going to end. We're on the edge of our seat. This is that point. This is that point in the movie where it's reached its climax. And when, when things look just altogether bleak, when it all seems lost, and all of a sudden, here in our text, in verse 4, we see a turning point. Six letters that change everything, that change the tide in one moment. These six letters are but God. Verse 4. You ready for this, church? I told you, the bad news had to be bad. Get ready. Here we go. Verse 4, I absolutely love this passage. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
When all seemed bleak, God's grand plan was revealed in Jesus Christ. And here we have our but God moment. Our but God moment. And as bad as the bad news was, church, the good news is better. Let's look at it. God, it, it, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, meaning that God has massive quantities of mercy for you, that it's not a shoestring budget here. He is rich in mercy. What is mercy? I, I believe I have the definition of mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. To put it simply, it's the act of not giving someone what they deserve. The act of not giving someone what they deserve. So think of that. God is rich in not giving you what you deserve. He's got massive quantities of that. Of giving you what you, of not giving you what you deserve. Verse 3 says, uh, told us what we did deserve, by the way, which was the wrath of God. And he's rich in not giving us that. Rich in, 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 in why. Our text says, because of his love, not because of any other reason, he doesn't give us what we, he doesn't not give us what we deserve because of anything we bring, but it's because of his love toward us, not what we bring to the table. We receive his mercy not based on anything in ourselves, not based on the good things we do, not based on our clever arguments of why we think we might need it. It's because of his love. And how do we know? Because you were dead. And again, we've said this, dead things don't make compelling arguments. They're dead. But God is rich in mercy. And our text says, he made us alive that he breathed life into you again. Have you ever thought the term born again was strange? Seriously? I have. Like, I have thought, and this won't make any sense for you because you guys are all more mature than me. Um, <laughs> I've always thought this was a strange term. Like, this is never the term I would go to someone who is wondering about the faith and say, I'm born again. Like, I get it, but it feels strange, right? Just me. Okay. Um, Think of it like this. In Genesis, as God created the world, he created man, breathed into him, he became a living thing, right? He became a living thing. Now, in this text, he does the very same thing. He takes you, and spiritually, he picks you up and breathes. He breathes, making that once dead thing alive. Taking what was dead, making it alive, born again from death to life. Then Paul continues, it gets better. He says, by grace you have been saved. Grace, I, I put that up here as well, is the free unmerited favor of God. The act of giving some, someone something that they do not deserve. It's a gift. Um, it is the, the unearned, unassisted favor of God. And so Paul says, so by grace, which is the unearned, unassisted favor of God, you have been saved. So let's rest in that. If I were a betting man, I would bet that the majority, that if there was one thing that the majority in this room would struggle with, it is this. It's grace. 
Why do I say that? Well, um, typically we're a pretty religious community. And you're like, well, that's a bad thing? No, it's, well, yeah, kind of. But um, historically, religion and grace do not get along. They don't get along very well. Um, religious people tend to struggle with grace. They do. If you're religious, you need to admit that. There's grace here. Admit that. Religious people tend to struggle with grace. If you need proof, we look at the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's look at the way religious people treated our Savior. More than that, let's look at our Savior, his response to the religious people. He was more harsh on them than anyone else in the Gospels. Typically, the religious people aren't a fan of Jesus, and, and the feeling was often reciprocated in the text. Does that make sense? Um, religious people often struggle with grace, because here's why. Religion offers you a, tends to offer you a set of things that if you do this, and if you don't do this, you will have favor with God. Follow me? And most of the time, the people who are really good at doing this and not doing that, they are the leaders, you know, and they, they go up in the ranks, right? Um, that is how religious people tend to look at it. They tend to look at it like that. But hear me, that is not Christianity. Christianity says, by grace you have been saved. Whereas religion often says, do this, don't do this, and God will accept you. Here's what God says. You have failed. I told you the bad news earlier. The bad news is true. You have failed. Jesus came taking your punishment, giving you in exchange his perfection, and now based on nothing you did or did not do, God accepts you in Christ. God accepts you in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And why does he do this? Why does, Paul says he, he raises us up with him in Christ. Why does he do this? This has absolutely hit me this week. It says, so that God might show his immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ, of his grace and his kindness. Think about this. Really think about this. Our God could have demonstrated his power in any way he chose. He could have in a moment lit up the sky and just inspired fear in everyone. We would have all known that's, oh, it would have been that fear. He could have got the attention of everyone in that moment. Our God could have done that. But our God chose kindness. Our God chose kindness. Consider it if a, a human king would do that ultimate power in his hands, looking to show off his power and to show, make himself known, and he chooses to be kind. That would be amazing. That's what our God did. Multiply that by just in, infinitely. And that's the image that we get seeing an all-powerful God of the universe show, uh, choosing to show us his power, to show us the riches of his power, his grace. In kindness, in, in kindness, through excessive and unmatched kindness. Let's continue and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, parents or teachers, what does it mean when you repeat yourself? What does it mean when you have to say the same thing over and over and over again? Micah, get down. Matthias, don't do that. What does that mean? It means it's important. It means listen to this. Don't miss this. Make sure you see this. So church, don't miss this. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And it is not because of something we did or did not do. It is a gift. Think of it like this. Um, This gift is nothing like Santa on Christmas. My favorite movie, I hate to admit this, is Elf. Anyone? Yes. I don't know why it is my favorite. We watched it a couple of weeks ago, just like against all rules. But uh, it's my favorite movie. And in and, and one of the scenes in this movie, Buddy the Elf finds out that his dad is on the naughty list. Do you remember his response? He just like screams, no, he just screams and the camera pans out. It's awesome. Um, he, he, he just has this reaction. He's so upset. Why is he so upset? Because with Santa, you get no present if you're on the naughty list. You get no love if you're on that naughty list. Uh, but here's the good news. With God, grace extends beyond the naughty list. And let me unpack this. Here's the gospel. The point of the good news in Jesus Christ is that you were on the naughty list and you deserved your spot there. You earned it. You nailed it. You got the naughty list fair and square. That was you. But God lavishly blessed you with gifts, placing you on the nice list because someone else was nice on your behalf. Someone else stepped into your spot on the naughty list. Does that make sense? Jesus was good on your behalf. And now you get all the blessings and the gifts and he pays the debt. That is the good news. And again, it's not the result of works, meaning you didn't earn this, you couldn't earn this. Remember, you earned the naughty list. And Paul reminds you, you cannot boast. Because when you're on the naughty list and when you earned that spot on the naughty list and you're given a free gift, what right do you have but to boast in the giver? You can't boast in anything else at that point. You boast in the giver of the gift. It's by grace. Paul's still not done. I have one more and then we're going to wrap it up. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Your works, as we've said, do nothing to earn you anything before God, but instead, because you are a child of God, your, your works are now a part of God's plan for you. The plan that was prepared beforehand. So if you've ever wondered, and I think all of us have, if God has a purpose for you, does God have a plan for me at all? Does God have anything for me? Am I just a mistake that is wandering around making mistakes? What am I? If you've ever wondered that, you can rest on the fact that God has a plan for you. And not only is it good, but it outdates you. He dreamed this plan up for you before you were even here. You are not a mistake. That our text says, you are his workmanship. 
Your purpose, it, it, God's plan for you is deeper than you could even imagine that as a child of God, you have value in him. So let me pack this up. Let's recap the big picture. So you were dead, following after the dead end, after dead end, after dead end, following after the world. You were living in your passions, living on a whim. There was no purpose. It was life without meaning, as this text said. You were dead, living in the wrath of God, in in the wrath of an all-powerful God, dead. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his love, he took you who were dead, And he breathed life into you, making you alive. Raised you up, and once you were children of wrath, and now God is choosing to use you as his grand object lesson in kindness. From wrath to kindness. Saving you by giving you unearned, unassisted favor. Making you his his workmanship, his masterpiece, setting your purpose toward the good things that he has prepared for you. Once you had no meaning, now you have a meaning that outdates you. How cool is that? You're tied to a purpose that outlives you, uh, predates you. Do you see the turnaround in that but God moment? Verse four, but God. The bad news was dark, it was heavy, it was terrible, it was hopeless. But church, the, the bad news has a way of showcasing our good news. The bad news has this way of of showcasing how good the good news is. The resolution of this conflict is so sweet. And so here's the call. It's simple this morning to come to God through Christ. That's it. And here's here's what happens. Before we continue singing, there's this tendency in us that whenever... um, I see a problem in my life whenever I I see that I need to grow, I see that I need to do something, I see that I need help. Um, What we tend to do is we buy a lie, and here's the lie. Yeah, I was dead, yeah, things weren't good. Yeah, you were dead, things weren't good, but you can do it. But you can fix it. But you can try harder. You can get it right this time. I know the pat. no, you can get it right this time. You can be all right. You can fix it. My plea with you this morning is to not buy that lie. Do not buy the but you lie. Do not buy it. Our gospel is good news that says, but God. It's not good advice that says, but you can do it. Our gospel is the good news that says, but God. And so we come to God in Christ and, and we realize that we are dead. And church, this, this, this matters. Um, it matters in life. This matters in death. It matters in life because now we have a purpose. We have a plan. We get to walk in that and be connected with something that's well beyond us. It matters and it transforms life. Church, it also matters in death. Um, this week, uh, this Friday, I lost my grandmother. And as our, church, as our, our family just kind of collects, try to process that and collects our thoughts, hear me. As we grieve, and we do grieve, as we grieve, we don't grieve like we don't have hope. 
As we grieve, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. It is because of the gospel that on Tuesday, when, when we are at the memorial service, that the tone in that room is not going to be one of hopelessness. Yeah, we're going to grieve, but we know that the moment, the moment that she closed her eyes, that she was with her Savior. And so we stand on a gospel that not only changes our life, it changes our death. This matters profoundly. The gospel matters that but God, through his rich mercy, but God, because of his love for you, but God, saved you by his grace, but God, made you alive in Christ, but God, is showing off his kindness, but God, gave you purpose as his workmanship, but God, the six most beautiful letters and the letters that, that sum up our gospel is but God. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for the good news that meets me right where I am. I know that the words of the first part of this chapter are true. I have felt what it feels like to be dead. I have felt what it feels like to have no purpose. I have felt what it feels like to not know which way is up. I have felt what it feels like to just be wandering around aimlessly, following after things that I know lead to dead ends. I know what that feels like. And I am grateful for verse four that says, but God, I am grateful that you have picked me up and changed my life. I am thankful that you breathe life into me. I am thankful that everything now is different because of you. Everything. God, I pray for this, this church, for everyone in this room. No matter the background, I, no matter if we've been a, a follower for, for 40 years or maybe we're here and we've been a follower for four months. Maybe we're here and we have no intention or we didn't have an intention when we walked through this room, through those doors. No matter where we are, no matter where your grace meets us, we are confident to know that your grace is enough. We are confident to know that your grace is enough to meet us where we are and to totally transform our life and breathe life into us through your spirit in Christ Jesus. We stand on the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone. And we know it's a work of you. And so in these final moments, God, we celebrate you. We thank you, we adore you, we worship you because we know that it is you. We brag in our giver this morning. We boast in you, we thank you, we point to you, we praise you. And we love you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.